Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our exploration of Mockingjay, reading chapter 12. Britt, could you start us off with a recap, please? Since Katniss can't join the rescue efforts, Hamish goes to ask Plutarch if they can help in any way. Finnick is relieved to hear about the rescue because by the end of the day, their torment will be over one way or another. It's decided that Katniss and Finnick will record propos that will serve as a diversion during the breakout. Katniss explains how she met Peeta and says she now understands what Snow meant about Panem being fragile because the capital is completely dependent on the districts and will collapse without them. When it's Finnick's turn to record, he opens up about how Snow sex-trafficked him under threat of killing his loved ones. Instead of getting gifts from his buyers, he eventually got secrets, which he reveals about many high-ups in the capital, ending with Snow and all of the people he poisoned to gain and maintain power. After the recordings are done, Katniss finds out that Hamish's family and girlfriend were killed because of his stunt with the force field. Then, after Beatty breaks through with the new footage, Katniss and Finnick tie knots to pass the time until, finally, Peta, Johanna, and Annie are back in the hospital in District 13. Katniss is giddy to see Peta again, but when she does, his hands lock around her throat. Oh no. <sighs> I definitely did not stop reading the first time I read this book. Oh, I don't know if anyone in the world <laughs> did. Unless they were one of Colin's editors and she hadn't finished the next chapter yet. Oh, wow. That's the only I person can't imagine. that it's possible. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, why don't we head into our discussion, starting with our striking moments. What do you have? Yeah, I was appreciating, especially with our conversation last week about sedatives how Hamish asks Katniss if she wants to be sedated Mm. until they know if the mission was successful or not and he also tells Finnick that he doesn't have to tell his story of exploitation yeah it was kind of bringing me back to when Hamish was yelling at the Capitol people when they were going to give Katniss breast implants without Mm. her consent after her first games. And it was nice to see him again protecting some people because he is the oldest victor that they have with them. Yeah, it was nice to see him start using his understandings of situations, his position of some amount of power in in their current circumstances to care for some of the people around him. Absolutely. I think it's an example of Hamish at his best, where he Mm -hmm. is an advocate for others and he draws lines that maybe people don't feel as comfortable drawing for themselves or don't have the power to draw for themselves. Mm -hmm. And he, for a various number of reasons, including as he talks about how he has no one else to lose, has more freedom at times to do that kind of advocacy and knowledge or experience to to relate to it. So yeah, I think that Hamish is really at his best when he is serving other victors. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's understandable that from his experiences of exploitation and tragedy that he would react in a lot of unhealthy ways. But it's really nice to see when he can use those experiences and then react in a way that's that's caring for other people who are in positions where they are being exploited as well or, or can be. Absolutely. I was also noticing, actually, I, I think for the first time, that when Cressida is asking Katniss some questions about her and Peta, and when she says, Peta was already in love with you, though wasn't he? Even though the first time Katniss had actually spoken to Peta was on the train to the games, it said Katniss allows herself a small smile. Mm. And it was the first time I was really noticing that unlike so many of the times when Katniss is thinking about Peta and there's some sort of public aspect to it, Mm. whether she's in the games and she knows this is being broadcast to all of Penem or they're talking about Peta in command or, or whatever. This is one of the times that is it's clear that she's not faking it here. She's not putting on a show. She's not being performative with her smile, unlike so many times in the game is where it's like, uh, I lift my head up to the sky and give a knowing smile or whatever it is that it's like very intentional performance. But here, I think this is a genuine reaction from her because there isn't that thought of uh, kind of qualifying whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that also speaks to the relationship that she's built with Cressida and the team. Mm-hmm. That they're able to get that kind of reaction out of her and that honest response and that sincerity. You know, we, we've talked about how we want to pay more attention to them. And that was what I really got from that moment. Absolutely. Well, and the fact that she even asks Cressida to ask her about PETA. Mm-hmm. Because she feels more comfortable responding to a specific question. But she also is not putting him off limits you know exactly yeah Katniss can take direction she just can't take orders yeah (laughs) yeah I also appreciated just just a small thing when Hamish was talking about how people he loved were killed because of what he had done with the force fields and he said that like he was made an example to other future victors Mm. and tributes of what not to do and he said an example to the phoenix and johannas and cashmere's and i just appreciated that cashmere was in there as well because it's not somebody that we really think of as you know she's a career Mm. and and we don't think of her necessarily as one of the ones we're rooting for exactly or anything like that but it shows that Hamish sees all of these people as being a victim of the capital. Yeah, I was thinking about that moment a lot too, because I think that noting Johanna and Finnick is a really interesting contrast because if he's an example to both of them, Johanna didn't learn from his example or, <laughs> or she chose to follow it anyway because she did lose everyone through her defiance, whereas Finnick was much more able to be controlled and chose to protect those in his life. Unfortunately, was forced to do many things that he doesn't want to do. 
Yeah. I also think that's a good example of something that you've brought up earlier of how Snow doesn't always make the right choices because I think that Snow killing all of Hamish's people meant that Hamish wasn't able to be controlled. I mean, he could have done a lot more, mm-hmm. right? But he he didn't. And I don't know if that's partially because he did develop this addiction or he felt like it was pointless in their district or, or whatnot. But I, I do think that though he's not always great at it, Hamish, you know, like we were talking about before, does have a little bit more freedom to be in small ways defiant, especially on behalf of other victors, in part because all of the terrors that the capital inflicted on him were already inflicted. Well, and at that point, especially like in Catching Fire, now the only people he really seems to care about aren't Katniss and Peeta, and Mm -hmm. so standing up for them is probably easier because losing them would actually mean something to him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think possibly Haymitch was an example in a different way. He was an example to Snow, that there's just no, even if it's not for rebelliousness, like he just, he can't really exploit Haymitch in any of the same ways because there's just, yeah, nothing he holds over him. Mm -hmm. And so he did not do that with Katniss Mm. or Peeta. You know, he, he could have killed their families, but. It was much more effective to threaten Prim and her mom and Gail. Yeah, true. Yeah, can you imagine if, if he had killed them all? There's nothing that Katniss wouldn't do. Mm-mm. But what, do you have any striking moments you were thinking about? I do. Uh, one right at the beginning of the chapter is when Katniss takes a moment to imagine what life would be like without either Gail or Peeta. Mm-hmm. And... She describes it as a pale gray nothingness, kind of living in this world that goes on forever without any color and clearly anything to, for her to live for in a way. And I just thought it was a really imaginative moment, I think especially after I was thinking about her trying to envision where Prim went during the bombing. You know, that was a moment that I recognized Katniss's imagination and the way that she can use that as a hunter. Here I'm seeing her just being imaginative to process her own feelings about what could happen. And uh, yeah, it just was a a kind of a really interesting moment because when I think about Katniss's character, I don't think of imaginative as one of the core elements of her character, at least I haven't in the past. But here we're really seeing her put a, a really powerful imagination to work, which I think is interesting. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I first read that line, I was like, okay, Katniss, I mean, awfully dramatic if these two boys aren't here in your life. I mean, yes. But then I was also thinking about, but really, these are the only two friends that she has left. I mean, I think Finnick is quickly becoming a good friend, mm-hmm. but up until that point, Madge is dead. Yeah. Cinna is dead. And they are the only other two people in her life that it seems like she doesn't really feel like she needs to take care of. Like, Peta, there was some of that there in the games, but especially after the games and then in the second games, a little more give and take of sharing some of the burdens of being victors, of fighting in other games and things like that. And whereas 
with Prim and her mom, both of them she feels like she needs to take care of, even if her mom is at a much better place. So that's not true. She still doesn't feel like she can rely on her nor Prim. And so if you think about it in a friend way, it's like she had four friends. Two of them are dead. Yeah. As she would view because of what she did. And these are the, the last two. And and how do you become friends with someone after yeah. this all? Because either you're a celebrity or you're dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you're just so broken and depressed and anxious and just like can't trust anybody you know so mm-hmm. i can understand more like why she would feel like what's even the point <laughs> yeah i was also thinking of a couple examples of agency for one katniss declaring her freedom from snow and from the capital she kind of has this realization of as you mentioned in the recap how the capital is fragile because it relies on the districts and how for the districts to declare their freedom for the capital is a debilitating blow for it where it can no longer survive without the districts so you know katniss has obviously as the mockingjay been resisting and rebelling against the capitalist whole for most of this book but this is an interesting moment because she kind of has a systemic understanding that she didn't have before of we're not just rebelling because of how the capital oppresses us and mistreats us and how awful our lives are under the capital. But in fact, she she kind of gains an, almost like a class consciousness here of we're rebelling because we have an amount of power because we are the ones who make things run. And if we work together with that power, then we can overthrow the capital. Then the capital becomes the one that has to worry about us rather than vice versa Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i think is a a really cool moment gets all my radical progressivist (laughs) feelings going i know right i'm just like we could do this too if enough (laughs) of us did it overthrow capitalism i mean that's the amazing thing like you look at some of iceland's history with some political changes or different things that have happened like they've just been able to band together in ways that we just haven't been able to manage Mm -hmm. on a large scale like that i mean obviously iceland's population is so much smaller than ours here in the u.s but it's just like if we just did it the richest people (laughs) In part, you know, it's 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 reliant on all of us workers, you yeah. know? We have to accept the system and for the consumers. system to maintain. Yeah. yeah. Oh, why can't we just do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think a really inspiring moment from Katniss there. Uh, but it's immediately followed up by a really awful moment, which is when Plutarch gets inspired to ask cajole finnick into telling his story i think it's yeah a a good example of plutarch's inconsiderate utilitarian look at the people around him Mm -hmm. him seeing finnick for what finnick can provide even if it's utilizing his trauma 
Yeah, so it's just, you know, I, I think it, it's great that we do see Finnick agree to do it, and even after Hamish does back him up and says, you don't have to, but it's just a, uh, I think, a really fascinating juxtaposition for Katniss to declare her freedom in such a powerful way, and for that to make Plutarch think about using Finnick. Mm-hmm. It's just a, I don't know, just a great example also of how the rebellion that Katniss is a part of is not shiny, clean, perfect, <laughs> um, but she's right to be suspicious and critical. Absolutely, yeah. But why don't we move into our from another point of view section where we think about perspectives outside of Katniss's. So whose perspective did you want to discuss? Yeah, there was a couple I was thinking about, and one of them is Beatty. This this mm. read-through, I've been paying a little bit more attention to him, and when he's trying to hack into and break through with the footage mm-hmm. for this diversion plan, it says that his usual fidgety distraction is replaced with a determination I've never seen in him. I was just like, aw, he's trying his hardest to save his allies, you know, and that he is so focused. I was just imagining because of that small comment he had made earlier in this book about Finnick and if you really knew everything that he's been through, it's a wonder that he's alive at all. Yeah. And so Beatty's obviously aware, I'm not sure how close of a relationship they have, but I was just imagining Beatty as he is looking at this footage and as he's deciding when and how and how long of clips to try to break through with and what parts, oh, should I try to do this part again because they they cut us out and we missed part of this, you know, and like how difficult that would be with somebody else's incredibly vulnerable expression of part of their story of exploitation. So yeah, I was I was thinking about him wanting to like if Finnick is going to tell this part of his story, I'm going to try to get it across to as many people Mm. as I possibly can and I'm going to try to shame the capital and shame all of these people that are high up that are wealthy that have all of the privileges for what they've done to this I mean first of all boy and then early 20 year old yeah I was just thinking about him wanting to do that for Fennec and for any of the other victors who have had a similar experience as they said Finnick was by far the favorite but many of them were forced into this and maybe Beatty even feeling a bit of guilt that he he's forced to make technological advances and make electronic devices and innovate which is something he likes doing anyway Mm -hmm. like even if it's for an oppressive regime it's just so far distanced from what Finnick has experienced that yeah I wonder if he feels guilty that he you know not not that he got off easy but it would I could imagine it would feel that way you know and that making him want to focus and and succeed in this even more 
Yeah, absolutely. I like that a lot. And he's like, my friends. I mean, we, he likes to build these extravagant weapons for his friends. Mm -hmm. um, yet again, I think he cares about people a lot, even if he doesn't say much. Yeah. Yeah, very much a action speak louder than words. Even if he doesn't necessarily always feel like he can communicate those things or, or maybe just chooses not to, he shows in his priorities and in his hard work and his competence how seriously he takes those relationships. Absolutely. And I, I get that, BD. I'm, I'm similar in that way. <laughs> I don't have the skills that you have, but... <laughs> and then another thing I was thinking about is just the perspectives of people in the capital as they're hearing this. What if some of these secrets are about your brother? Mm. And you thought, oh, he had a fling with Finico Dare, you know, like the, the way maybe it would, could be talked about or sensationalized on the news or whatever. And like you had no idea that this was forced and this was paid for in exorbitant amount of funds that Finnick wasn't even getting the money for, of course. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, I mean, I'm sure some people, they wouldn't care or they already knew the truth. And other people would probably be like horrifying. What do you do with that? And what do you do with this so-called president that's been in office for way too long to be called the president? Mm -hmm. That they've maintained this by killing over and over and over and over again if you didn't already think that snow was evil would this story from fennec break through to you would you lose all confidence in your government yeah i was just thinking about how for some people who were maybe a bit naive in the capital that this news could be really crushing or enraging or disgusting you know which i mean it's all of those things yeah absolutely it makes me wonder what the material conditions are like in the capital at that point mm -hmm. because i could imagine if this had happened just during regular times in the capital though there'd probably be some people who are really disgusted and, and do lose faith in the government and things like that i think so much of the capital would also have this culture of just being like "Ooh, a new scandalous entertainment to pay attention to but i imagine at this point there have already been material consequences for the rebellions that Absolutely. the capital has started to have to ration and wouldn't have access to all the resources and the the wealth that they've had in the past and that change in your circumstances could so easily make you engage with this kind of information from a very different angle where it's not just oh look at these celebrities public figures who are doing these awful things but it's these celebrities and figures are doing awful things and now i kind of understand why there's a rebellion mm -hmm. yeah I, th I think it could be really powerful in that way absolutely and you know the hypocrisy would also come out too where it would be some people who were like oh i wish i had enough money to buy a night with finnick odair mm -hmm. like before and then now they're like oh i don't have my own level of luxury 
oh, it's your fault. And it's like, you're just such a hypocrite. But yeah. like, yes. Those people are far and wide in our world, so I imagine they are also in Penem. Yes. <laughs> but what about you? What's your other point of view? Well, I briefly wanted to touch on Johanna. Hmm. We only see her for a second, but Katniss describes her as covered with bruises and oozing scabs. Yeah. And that was really visceral for me, thinking about that. And it made me wonder why those scabs are oozing. Was that another form of torture that she, they wouldn't even allow her scabs to heal? Mm-hmm. Or is that something that Johanna did? as she was hurt and cut and bruised, that she would pick at her own scabs. The first thought I had to that was like, yeah, maybe it'd be an act of defiance of her, you know, peeling them off to show her continued agency over her body. Hmm. But I could also imagine it from someone like Johanna, who is a bit more hot-headed, generally, And I'm sure if she's in this situation, it can be hard for anyone to have, you know, full control. And so if you start itching on your body all over, scratching at those scabs when you have nothing else to do can be something that you, you know, just ultimately end up doing. And and yeah, it just made me really think about what the experience was like for her to experience that kind of torture. And Or like in the three hours that you were able to sleep. You were scratching in your sleep, you know. I've even woken up sometimes with scratches. I was like, oh, clearly I was, like, allergic to something or, you know, mm. something was going on. Totally, yeah. Yeah, so just the, those two words, or really that one word, oozing, mm-hmm. kind of was really, really illustrative for me. Mm. Yeah, I wonder, I, I don't know enough about biology to know, like, if certain conditions that your body could be in could prevent you from healing mm. well either you know from lack of sleep from stress from malnourishment and things like point. that yeah yeah absolutely it's a really interesting idea too yeah yeah but the main perspective i wanted to talk about is phoenix yes and phoenix really as he is telling his story because reading through it I really read his delivery as being particularly deliberate and dramatic and effective. It made me wonder, you know, what was going on through his mind. Because in part, I was wondering if there was a part of Finnick that had kind of mentally rehearsed this in the past of, I've been collecting these secrets. What would it sound like for me to finally be able to reveal them? Mm-hmm. and how much damage I could do. Yeah. Because the way that he sets things up and has dramatic pauses and, and teases that he'll talk about President Snow eventually and is just, yeah, really, really shows a lot of deliberate organization of his, his thoughts and, and the way that he wants to present it. And I was wondering if also there was an element where that kind of allowed him to disassociate from it as he was telling it as well. So I've never experienced anywhere near the amount of trauma that Finnick has. I did suffer some physical abuse, and I've definitely felt like talking about that is not something that makes me emotional most mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that's a kind of disassociative way of, of dealing with it, processing it, communicating it, 
or what, but Finnegir is also motivating himself because he knows this is what's going to be the best chance for Annie and for everyone else. But I still think that with yeah, this kind of amount of trauma, for him to be that deliberate and not being overwhelmed by emotion, yeah, it just it makes me wonder kind of what that process is like for him. Yeah, I mean, I love how he starts so blunt. Yeah. But there are like little ellipses, you know, in that first sentence. And I, I to me, I kind of read it as he, he just, he had to get it out. Like he had to say what happened to him clearly. Yeah. And then he could move on to parts that, I mean, obviously it's all personal, but like he's sharing other people's secrets rather than talking about his emotional experience with true, yeah. this exploitation and trauma. So I read it as that first sentence was the most emotional sentence mm. and everything else. He was talking about other people. Interesting. Yeah. I can see that being part of his thought processes or, or just how he's engaging with it. For me, I thought of a really emotional time is when he's forced to say cut because I know. Uh, Cressida and the crew just keep filming him yeah. after he's finished. And I can just imagine how Finnick is already teetering before he even agrees to do this. Mm -hmm. And he reveals what I, I hope is his most traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. He yeah, talks about all of these things that he's kept to himself in, in so many ways. And he's doing this, again, at the urging of people from the Capitol. And for them then to just keep having him be on camera and having to perform and not letting it end mm -hmm. could just, I, I could imagine him becoming so fed up and so overwhelmed and then finally just, yeah, just calling it himself and being like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I had a quite a different read on that. I actually kind of loved that he called cut because it was him deciding when he was done mm. rather than it be anyone else's decision. So it made me feel like, even though, yeah, I don't know what he would have talked about if Plutarch hadn't gone over to him, but I wouldn't have imagined it would have been this. So him calling Cut kind of felt to me like he was taking back a little bit of agency. Hmm. Of, you know, he could have kept going and I'm sure they would have kept getting more and more and more, you know, but he got to decide when he was done. Yeah, I like that interpretation a lot. Well, look at for once, I have a more positive one than you. <laughs> yeah, reading this chapter, I mean, this is, it's not even that long of a chapter where we're like, well, we have to do this one by itself because it's just too important. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, th there's just, there's no possible way I could possibly imagine what Finnick's experience would have been like doing this mm -hmm. but it it did bring to mind back when 
I was working for an anti-sex trafficking organization for like four years, several years ago. And at one point I was helping lead a discussion after a screening of a documentary about sex trafficking. I was helping lead this discussion with a young man who had been sexually exploited himself. Mm. And even though this the, the documentary was not close really to his demographic or anything like that, just watching it was so triggering for his trauma in a way that he just didn't really expect that he could barely get out a few sentences. And I just, you know, kind of took the lead on the discussion. And afterwards, you know, he, he thanked me for doing that because he just, he didn't expect that. And, you know, he was also what I would guess in his early 20s. And so I was just like thinking about that a lot while reading this like mm. yeah i can't i can't imagine what finnick would have been going through on like you know you're trying to do this to help save this person you love and also you know johanna which i think he he really cares about her and also Peta, you know like and these other people he wants to get back safely and maybe there's a tiny part of him that would want a little bit of accountability for these people that had a hand in doing this to him. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> even if you if you want to do it for those reasons, that doesn't mean when you're actually talking about it, it's not the worst thing ever. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, he's like, he's 24 years old. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you do this. Yeah. Finnick. Finnick. And then just like, I need to throw something at, coming from the pacifist. I need to throw something at Plutarch after, <laughs> after like, he's trying to talk to Finnick. Just shut up and let him go be by himself or talk to Hamish or Katniss if he wants to, you know. He does not want to talk to you right now, Plutarch. Like, shut up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe he was saying good job, but you don't even need to say that, Plutarch. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need anything from you, privileged capital person. Yes. Yes. Anger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of anger, why don't we move into our touch points? (laughs) Uh, These are when we talk about how what we're reading in the narrative connects to our society. So what touch points do you have for today? Well, let's just go right in there and talk about sex trafficking. And it's really weird because I had studied a fair amount about it in college. And then I worked for an organization for several years. And I don't know what, like, I've always thought of Finnick as having been sex trafficked because the legal definition includes anyone who is under 18 which is when he started was before he was 18 so like they waited a couple years well he he won when he was 14 so a couple years is not a lot i don't even know if i believe that (laughs) that's true too they didn't publicize it until yeah yeah and then 
also any adult is sex trafficked if it involves force, fraud, or coercion, which obviously this does. Yeah. And so I've always thought about that ever since reading this book, but I don't know why. Probably just because, like, I'm not paying attention to Snow because, like, all I care about here is Finnick. But, like, it's the first time I really realized that Snow is a pimp. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just was not thinking about it. But he is making money off of Finnick's body. We know that it's exorbitant amount of money. But Finnick was given gifts, quote-unquote, Right. By these Johns and then, yeah, went to Secrets. You know, and, and that means that Snow is making this money, whether he's using it for more games or his own personal wealth, we don't know, but it doesn't matter. And there's obviously the aspects of threats to the exploited person and their loved ones, which is very often how sex work with pimps can operate in the United States. Mm -hmm. I I worked with a woman who was a social worker who worked directly with girls that she helped get out. And after getting out, some of the families, like, they even had to move because of their safety, because of threats of violence or actual violence. Mm. So that's why it makes me livid when people use pimp as a positive word or like Mm -hmm. almost like an honorific word sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me so angry because this is not higher end sex workers who are choosing to be in this industry of their own volition. Like pimps are preying on the most vulnerable of society whether that's socioeconomically, whether that's age, whether that's kids who have had to run away from home because of abuse or because they were kicked out, you know, Mm -hmm. for being queer or whatever it is, pimps are making the money off of their bodies. Regardless of the reasons that people get into being a pimp, you know, because even like some Gangs and things have gone into sex trafficking, not just drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, gangs are very complicated for the socioeconomic reasons, the racial reasons, and things like that. But regardless of why people get into it or how they do, it's still threatening people with violence if they don't let you use their body when they don't let other people abuse it. And... That's that's what Snow is doing. And I'm just like, what is even happening? Like, of all things, like, Snow already has all of the wealth, all of the power in this country. Why does he feel the desire to also be a pimp? You know, I just like, I don't understand. And I despise him. Yeah, and... It is such a personal touch by Snow, too, mm-hmm. as Finnick describes it. It's not the capital has this system. It's Snow does this. Snow, this is a part of Snow consolidating power. And, yeah, such a, a just a personal thing that he's doing that is really just, just awful. And exactly what you're saying, this, you know, idea that pimp could be a compliment is 
just awful. And also, like, not even, it doesn't even make sense, because it's oftentimes used to be, like, someone who's good with women, but pimps aren't good with women, they force women into sex work through the threat of violence. Like, it's not like they're smooth. Well, they, they don't, it's... well, I mean, oftentimes <laughs> it is, actually. That's, like, especially if it's with younger, like, girls, they get into it. It's, like, they do a whole grooming process. They can be very psychologically savvy. Uh, That's true. So that they get people to the point where they coerce them or manipulate them into trying this and if they don't want to still do that which is let's face it the majority then they threaten them i mean obviously there are situations where people are like abducting people Mm -hmm. and things like that but a a lot of times it is through a really dysfunctional grooming relationship that's true Uh, yeah but yeah it's just like yeah, he he already has everything. Like, is it... He does <laughs> Yeah, I just... Oh my god. I didn't even think about <laughs> Did he get this idea? Did he, like, envision it because of Tigress? Mm. Oh, no. Um, now I hate him even more. Oh my god. Yeah. Every time we think he's <sighs> as low as we can imagine... He is the worst. You realize how the worst character in any book, any story ever. Awful. Yeah, like he didn't even want to entertain the idea that, like, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to ask her about it Mm -hmm. because he didn't want to think that his sister did these things. And it's just like she did it for you, (laughs) so that you would have food on the table. And then, yeah, then exploiting other vulnerable people. Ugh. See, he only wants to benefit exactly. from it. Exactly, yeah. Um, oh. oh, and then Lucy Gray, too. Mm. Okay. Well, I think we should move on or else I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna get us an explicit rating. <laughs> so what do you have for me? Well, one kind of brief thing is just how Katniss is able to imagine how Finnick's stories are going to be riveting to everyone, including Snow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just kind of reminded me about how in our society, which Panem is clearly a metaphor for, the idea of sex sells. All of the people who are creating media know this and utilize this. The example brought to my mind was for the show Dollhouse, which was run by Joss Whedon, and a lot has come about how Joss Whedon himself is really problematic, uh, in particular with his female actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this show, it was clear even when the show was on the air that the studio had a deeper hand in that what was going on in the show than it typically does, and that it was using that to add more sexual content. And the show is premised on the idea that people who are in bad situations sell their bodies and minds to a company to basically become like human robots that can be bought and sold for whatever you need companionship an assassin you know all sorts of other kinds of things and Joss Whedon wanted to go in all these interesting <laughs> whatever ways whatever you it. want we should say <laughs> yes uh and 
the studio kept saying, we need this to be utilized for sex more often. And so, like, really making the show narrative being focused much more on sexual exploitation and these other kinds of things than was originally intended. Yeah, I think that that's just one example of how I'm sure many creatives also have the same kinds of pressures of, okay, well, hire a young, conventionally attractive woman and have her in underwear or nude in your film so that we can get more eyes on it or whatever it might be. Yeah, I haven't watched it, but ugh, that type of thing just irks me so much because it's like you can talk about that sort of exploitation, but you don't need to exploit those actors' bodies in doing so. Exactly. It's not difficult. Yeah. So yeah, I I think that uh, it is a, a true fact, unfortunately, that sex gets people's attention in our society. So I appreciate that Collins features that in both the way that the capital utilizes the Hunger Games and in how Katniss knows that this is going to be an effective way of getting the capital's attention. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also nice because for her to have a character that at first you're like, okay, what's going on? Why is he creeping on Katniss? Oh, he seems to be like this with everyone? Like, whatever. And then you get to like him more and more and more just as you see more of his personality come out and how sensitive he is and how caring he can be and how not superficial he is when that's the image that is portrayed for him and then almost halfway through this book you find out this it's just i think so well done because finnick is not defined by this yeah you already love finnick and You've almost forgotten in some ways about how he first came off mm-hmm. to Katniss because there are other things about his character, his personality, his motivations that are so much more important and impressive and meaningful. So then when you get to this, it's just, it, add, it adds a layer to his character for sure, but it doesn't overwhelm it. And everything you see of him isn't seen through the light of this exploitation either yeah that's a great point yeah i mean and that's why i even knew i was when i first started was just typing up notes i was like ah when finnick tells his story i was like no i need to say part of his story because this is not his story this is just part of his life and his experiences and she very much writes him that way which i incredibly appreciate that's a really good point yeah i'll i'll try to Rearrange my own language there. Hmm. The other touch point I wanted to hit was on Snow's use of poison as yes. a way of gaining political power. Because Snow is a stand-in for the kinds of cult of personality dictators that we've certainly seen in the last hundred years of world history. And unfortunately are seeing again right now. Yes. It is interesting because... Most of the more prominent examples of those kinds of dictators, when they were essentially culling any challengers or rivals, they did so through much more aggressive means. They did so through secret police, perhaps, but often through just military force, arrests, sham trials, like all these things that were pretty public. And Snow doesn't do that. Snow is someone who uses poison, and so sure, there might be whispers and rumors, but 
actually he is causing the deaths of so many people. And I think that it's a really interesting way of presenting a villain. Because I think that it, it highlights why the capital is villainous as well. Mm. Because it is insidious. It's gilded. It's all focused on glitz and glamour and performative extravagance. Yet it is actually deadly and selfish and utilitarian in that it uses and objectifies people and, of course, terrorizes people. Mm-hmm. So I think that his use of, of poison and Katniss calling him a snake is really illustrative of how Poor he... snakes. <laughs> yeah. But the, the connotations that often come with that, it really illustrates how he is the representation of the capital in so many ways. That he is that kind of manipulative, slippery, insidious, deadly person. Yeah, and I also think it's a really interesting choice, too, because it's poison is not these sensationalized sorts of way we see in entertainment mm. of assassinating people. It's like, oh, this big fighting battle or a sniper or, you know, like these very, like, leaning into toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all behind the scenes it's just it's a it's an interesting choice because i feel like in entertainment if anyone is going to use poison it is a female character right and yeah just it it, it kind of takes the sensationalness out of those killings Mm -hmm. and a lot of the times poison is it, it would almost harken back more to 1950s or 60s sorts mm-hmm. of, of film and novels and things like that and so um yeah it's, it's just a very interesting choice it is yeah it's it's often discussed as yeah a woman's weapon or a coward's weapon definitely mm-hmm. against that kind of toxic masculine representation that you've mentioned yeah it makes me wonder if there's like a queer reading of this text that highlights you know, whether the, not to say this is Colin's intention, but just a reading of the text that Snow portrays a kind of non-traditional gender representation and therefore the, maybe the books put that forward as a villain in a kind of way that is not great. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah, I never, I never thought about that, but... Because, yeah, his use of roses, his use of poison, you know, I think that... If you argue the reading is trying to allude to those kinds of traditional gender ideologies, mm-hmm. and he is, or I, shouldn't, I should say, in the original trilogy, there are no textually queer characters, and so if you read him that way, he becomes kind of Panem's example of that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, there's, a, maybe there's a paper there, or a, at least a blog post. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. But then once you factor songbirds and snakes in, you right. know... Also, I think, just in general, in the capital at least, the traditional gender representation is not really there. I mean, look how Caesar Flickerman dresses and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, another thing I was kind of thinking about with the poison and him, like, poisoning all of these people, not only his opponents, but also some of his allies that maybe could take over for him or things like that. Mm -hmm. I was just, like, thinking about how much it reminds me of men in our society who, like, think it's their merit that lets them rise to power and maintain it and succeed and things like that and like other people just believe it and it so often has nothing to do with their abilities or anything really about them it's the privileges that they have you know just like zuckerberg or one of the founders of mcdonald's cheat their business partners or Throughout history, tons of men in science have gotten credit for the work of women. And, you know, it's just like, this is like a constant thing in our world and our history. And there's a great book that's all about how the railroad barons of the late 1800s (laughs) were actually all kind of awful businessmen because most of their businesses failed but Mm. because this was early capitalism they still made millions and millions of dollars because you could just make money off of selling failing companies and also the only reason they were able to succeed at anything is because of government subsidies and labor exploitation oh i mean of (laughs) course yeah and the displacement and Mm-hmm. killing of indigenous peoples and all yeah. sorts of other awful things yes <laughs> who else is someone who is raised up as a great successful businessman but is a really bad businessman and i got a small loan to start off with is a million dollars it's like yeah i'm sure most people could build a business if they were given a loan a million dollars without interest yeah without interest and uh, uh and better so <laughs> yes it was just kind of reminding me of that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well why don't we head into our wonderment section what are you wondering about yeah so one we we kind of touched on already when we were talking about Hamish saying that you know an example was made of him mm So I was just kind of wondering, like, is that true or is that Hamish's rationalization or his own narrative about what happened to him? Because I can't imagine that no one else did anything defiant or made a fool of the Capitol in the 40 years between Lucy Gray and him. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that that would be true, especially seeing that there were a lot of defiant people in Lucy Gray's year. Reaper burying the bodies, Marcus refusing to take food, and then running away, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Even you had people starting to repurpose things in the arena, like the drones that they used to deliver the food. And so... Yeah, I I just can't imagine that nobody else would have done anything. So if their own family's loved ones were killed, he didn't hear about it. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if the same would be true of him. These things happened to him, which were obvious why they were happening to him from his own point of view. But does someone from District 6 know that his family was killed? Probably not. Yeah. And so the only people who would really have the chance of knowing would be 
future tributes from District 12 who he mentors if he told them, or other victors. But by the time you have other victors, you know, you're already kind of past that point of publicly making a fall of the capital. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could, still could, but the tactic of threatening loved ones is more, much more effective. Agreed. And I don't think anybody needs an example for them to comply with threats. And And I feel like in the games themselves, people are going to be doing things to survive. And if that means using something in an unconventional way in the arena, they'll probably do it without really thinking about the consequences of that because if they don't do it, they're going to die right now. Yeah. So yeah, I was just kind of wondering about that, how he kind of came to that conclusion and what that means for him in his own view of his life and what's happened to him. Yeah. What about you? What's your wonderment? This probably wouldn't surprise you to hear, but I want to hear Finnick and Annie's love story. <laughs> Has she crept up on him? Yeah, exactly. What, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, in particular because I'm sure that he knew how the capital could use people against him. And mm-hmm. so for him to build a new connection is something that he probably wouldn't want to happen because it puts both of them in danger. And then it does. And... I don't know, just a consideration of when you're already so vulnerable to be vulnerable with someone in a new way. I mean, that's true. uh, Must be, yeah, just really hard. Being in a relationship with a partner who is forced into sex work, you know, I I don't even know what that looks like, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, I just, I think that that would be a interesting story and probably really heartbreaking. Yeah, but hopefully nice, too. Yeah, exactly. That bittersweet (laughs) love story. Yeah. All right, well, I think we should probably head into our intentions. This is what we're taking away from this conversation. So I was noticing when Finnick was talking about being relieved that this rescue plan is happening, he said, by the end of the day, either they'll be dead or with us. And I just appreciated how he used the word dead. Uh, because mm-hmm. I don't really love euphemisms for the word dead, um, but people, at least in the United States, use them almost exclusively. Yeah. Uh, particularly when they're talking about someone that they care about. Mm-hmm. N- not if it's a tragedy or something like that, but, you know, they'll use pass away or lost, gone, no longer with us, these types of things, but he uses this word that makes it feel more blunt just because it's accurate, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of thinking that I'm sure there are places that I use euphemisms in just normal conversations and life. And so, yeah, I just want to try to, if I can, be aware of when I'm doing that and, like, if it's a good reason for doing it, if it's not, what is being accomplished with using that euphemism. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. What about you? What's your intention? Yeah, thinking about Finnick's process of telling the part of his story that he told, it made me think about if there are other times in my life where I do dissociate. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I kind of want to see, be a bit more intentional about being kind of reflective on that 
for myself, see if I am, you know, using distractions as a way of disassociating from depression, anxiety, stress, uh, or anything else that I might be feeling, and seeing, yeah, how healthy that is for me and, and where that's occurring. Totally, yeah. No, even when you said that earlier, I was like, oof, I think I do that a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If it's something like this happened to me in the past, like, I can just usually talk about it very matter-of-factly and unemotionally. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know, maybe it's a bad thing, maybe it's good, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but Certainly not disassociative. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> really drilling down into it there. A continuation of <laughs> <laughs> Britt needs to go back to therapy. <laughs> well, I think that will end our discussion on chapter 12. What's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we'll be reading chapter 13 and 14, where we find out what is going on with PETA. PETA. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you join us on Patreon so that you can get access to all the great bonus content that we're doing as we read through the series. We will be having one of our special episodes with a review of Mockingjay Part 1 movie after next week because that's where the movie ends. Those are always fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if you want to listen to that and the previous two movie review episodes we've done, you should join us on Patreon. We'd like to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.